welcome to, to X-rated. <laughs> I was gonna say the Franzia Appreciation Podcast. Oh. Well, we're X-rated movies first, Franzia Appreciation Podcast second. There you go. The first part's about movies. The second part's about box wine. <laughs> yes. You know, this is probably what episode three or four in a row where we've just had Franzia, and I don't know why. Like, well, I mean, I know why. It's cheap. Like, and I buy the wine. <laughs> <laughs> It's like, that, that's a no-brainer. <laughs> but honestly, like, Franzia is unoffensive. Like, there's cheap wine out there that, like, you know, tastes cheap. I mean, Franzia doesn't taste like expensive wine, but it's unoffensive. Like, it's it, they put enough sugar in it. Yeah. Like, they got they got that combination of cheap wine and, and high-grade sugar that, like, it's totally drinkable. I once bought a brand, I'm not going to say the name, that was very affordable. And I brought it home, and... Uh, I actually only had a little bit of it and ceased to call it wine. I just started calling it alcoholic drink <laughs> sure. after a while because it was swill. Mm-hmm. It was just dis- terrible. A beloved grocery chain also has some boxed wine that, while typically they're very good with wine, their boxed wine is not as good, especially their white. White is usually the more inoffensive of cheap wines, yeah. and this was, yeah... Just alcoholic beverage-like product. Would you say that this beloved grocery store chain has terrible parking lots? Oh, yeah. 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 Okay. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, this chain named after uh, barterers, you know, <laughs> um, and and hagglers <laughs> of yesteryear. I think I know what you're talking about. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, Francia, because you and I go through at least two bottles of wine during these sessions yeah and just the the price like i know you like your screaming deals and i mean they're not screaming deals they're like silent majority (laughs) deals they went out yeah yeah (laughs) even though uh they're not loud about it right exactly exactly that i was just like you know what i need two bottles of wine and i need it on the cheap and god damn it if six ninety nine is not the price point that wins this over for me, <laughs> I'm a firm believer that you shouldn't have to spend too much on wine to get a good one. Like I don't think you should spend more than twenty five dollars on a bottle unless like you're a real like true blue sommelier. Oh uh, yeah, please. Which up until like a year ago I thought was like a fancy term for Somalian. But yeah, I just I have a moral imposition to paying more than that for fine wine i used to aim for that like ten dollar mark and i've started paying a little more speaking of screaming deals the way i shop usually is i'm like i find what the original price was i see how much it's on sale for Mm -hmm. and if the sale price hits into that like you know ten dollar zone that's how i used to buy now i'm letting that sale mark go up to about like fifteen dollars and uh i'm telling you there's a difference like if a wine is actually originally priced at like twenty five, you have a much greater chance of getting a good one than something that's like originally priced at fifteen. Sure, 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 so. sure. For the record, your capitalist streak is showing right now. <laughs> Anyways, but no, no, no. I, I, I agree. I agree. I think that if you got a twenty five dollar bottle of wine for say fifteen, and you got like a thirty five dollar bottle of wine for twenty. Mm-hmm. I'd be hard-pressed to think that, that the average wine drinker could really tell the difference between those yeah, two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Once you start getting into, like, $25, $30 bottle wines from the grocery store, yeah. we should say, because, like, restaurants, who fuck knows. After that point, you're sort of like, I can't really tell. Well, you've worked in the service industry for a while. Has anyone ever sent back a bottle of wine? 
Yes. Really? Mm-hmm. Did you just like rip their head off and set it on fire? <laughs> well, no, I tried the wine. And uh, I was like, if it was corked, then you say, oh, yeah, that's bad. I'll get you another one. But if not, you say, no, that's just how it's supposed to taste. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. So there's a little leeway. There's a little give and take there. Well, the only reason you taste wine, it's not to be like, oh, yeah, I like this. We'll take it. Once that mm-hmm. bottle's open, you've bought it. It's yours. Mm-hmm. So if someone sends it back, it's because there's something wrong with the bottle. Mm-hmm. And that has happened to me. Like, that, it happens once in a while. But, like, if you say, no, that's how it's supposed to taste, are they just stuck with it then? Yeah. Really? Yeah. I mean, it depends on the place you're working at. But, like, in general, that's that's been the response is, like... No, you bought this. There have been times I've worked at places, too, where they just, like, they send it back. It tastes fine. Um, we get them another bottle. They like that bottle. But uh, staff gets to drink that do one. You, and do it's the, like, fine with me. Okay. <laughs> do you do the old bait and switch where you just, like, we'll, we'll get you a fresh bottle, and you just pour the same bottle and throw a different label on it. And mm-hmm. they're like, oh, this is delicious. <laughs> I rarely go to restaurants where... You taste the wine. I do enjoy the ritual of that, though. Yeah, it's fun. The swirl, the sniff, the looking at the legs, the swishing around. Like, I know that, like, servers probably fucking hate me for doing the whole thing, but I do enjoy that ritual when I'm out. No, you should. Yeah, that's what okay. it's about. Yeah, I don't know. It's part of the, the dining experience. Mm-hmm. I did hate it when they'd be like, you know like i'd pour it for one person and they taste it and then someone else at the table has to taste it and like another person has to taste it. it's like just fucking say the bottle's fine yeah (laughs) you're gonna drink it anyway (laughs) i'm not here to watch you all be like like one person's playing have you ever gone to a wine tasting oh yeah yeah did you spit out the wine i have gone to wine tastings where i have spat out the wine okay Mm -hmm. when i was expecting to drink lots of lots of wine Mm -hmm. over a Mm -hmm. period of time but there are ever so often, even one ones where I'm intending to spit it, I'm like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to savor this. Yeah, you're a swallower if I ever saw one. <laughs> when you go to those, is there like a palate cleanser? I've never actually done a wine tasting. Um, yeah, there's usually like crackers or things like that around that you can like uh, to munch on. Okay. That usually helps. Because I just feel like after like five, six like swigs, like your mouth would be a little stained with wine at yeah. that point. Yeah, that's why the uh, proper wine tasting will start you off with like kind of lighter stuff. Mm. And then that way your, your palate's not all blown out. Mm, 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 mm. You can finish with the bigger stuff. Okay, okay. It's fun. You should have a podcast on drinking. <laughs> what, what would I call it? Why done. Ryan Wine done. <laughs> that's, I, I'm assuming that you're just... That face is because of the wine. <laughs> if it helps, my first thought was crunk around the clock. Okay. <laughs> We're still in the brainstorming stage. No, no judgments in brainstorming. <laughs> One, um, two, three o'clock, four, four o'clock, o'clock wine. <laughs> Sorry, that was just creepy for a second. You just, is everything about you? You think he can see you? Yeah, your lights are on. So? The reflection. It's th- This is an impenetrable wall of glass. You know, I've walked by here and I can see directly. Different into- angle. Oh, okay. Well, Matt, it's funny that you asked me if I think everything is about me. <laughs> yeah. 
because, because why? That's, that's a that's a major criticism uh, about today's movie. Uh, what movie would that be, Ryan? Well, today's movie is uh, the singular work of art, Synecdoche, New York. It's a big movie, Matt. Yeah, this is a like capital B big. Yeah, lot to talk about. Almost too much to talk about. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think that's kind of intentional. Before we get anywhere, this is a big question. What do you think this movie's about? Well, I think the movie is about the importance of setting boundaries. I don't think that quite articulates it. You know, you especially say, like, you know, in art, nothing's done, it's just due. Mm-hmm. And this is a guy creating a big piece of art that has no due date and it just consumes his life and as his life changes and because this is supposed to be a reflection of his life that he's constantly changing it to match his new life we'll dig into this as we go but the art that he's creating is changing his life Mm -hmm. and it gets into this vicious circle that his art has to match his life, and in doing that, that changes his life, so he has to change his art. Okay. This isn't beautiful or poetic, but like if he had outside investors demanding a set due date or a willing audience who were like, we are expecting this to open on said date, and it has to be ready for premiere at this time, I don't think that it would have completely consumed his life. Because mm-hmm. as it stands, spoiler alert, this great work of art that he devoted, you know, the second half of his life to was only seen by the people working on it. Yeah. Like no one actually got to see his truth. And so to me, I think it's about the importance of setting artistic boundaries for yourself because one, Charlie Kaufman IRL does that. He doesn't have internet at home. He doesn't have cable. And it's because he knows that it would just be a distraction. No internet. Yeah, no. He, I think he has like a typewriter or like a word processing computer, but he doesn't have internet at home because he knows that he'd just dick around on that all day instead of working. And you see that reflected in his wife, Catherine Keener's character, mm-hmm. Adele, because she does give herself constraints. She's working on like the tiniest medium like as it goes like it's like smaller and smaller yeah, until you need a magnifying glass to see it and she's constantly putting out work and she's meeting deadlines for gala openings and shows and, and things like that so to me it's just it's sort of the importance of constraining yourself giving yourself realistic constraints to actually get a product out okay I like that. Okay. Mm-hmm. What do you feel like it's about? Well, personally, I think it's a movie about death. I think it is sort of the mind of a person coming to terms with like their finishing out of life. And then just like at the end of the movie, this person is dead. And it's like all the crazy things that rush through your head in that last like maybe 24 hours of your life starts off the movie the first shot is of that alarm clock going from 7:44 to 7:45 um and it's you know that person talking about fall and how it's like a really wistful kind of reflective time of year 
And then at some point later on, he talks about how I've decided what this play is going to be about. It's going to be about uh, somebody's last day on Earth and like just before they die. And then the last line of the movie is actually die. It's, you know, um, Diane Weiss's character, Helen, telling him to die. But we see through the progression is him like kind of thoughts coming and going. There's not a lot of logical sense to the movie, but there is sort of like an emotional sense to it. Well, I I actually think there is a lot of logical sense when you kind of break it down into bite-sized chunks. Like maybe not a strong narrative through line logically, Mm -hmm. but there are certain elements to it that do make a lot of sense. Like... And this is going to sound crazy if you haven't seen the movie. But, you know, it gets to a point where there's a warehouse inside the warehouse. Right. So there's, like, warehouse one, which is, like, the real warehouse. And there's warehouse two, which is the the staged warehouse. And there's just a scene of, like, him walking around kind of giving directions. And he walks by, like, a newsstand that's, like, part of the play. And that's, like, in Warehouse 1. Mm-hmm. And then, like, five minutes later, he's kind of doing... There's, like, a mirrored shot of it. But he's inside the new warehouse. And they're like making a newsstand. Yeah. Like, they're still painting it. Yeah. Like, there is, like, logic like that that for makes sure. sense. For sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, I mean, as far as, like, narrative and, like, from scene to scene, it can be hard to find that logical through line. And I think it's because it's just him chasing thoughts as he's, like... It's a little dream logic Yeah, it's yeah. more it's more that. So, it's, like, I think... I mean, this is, to me, a very emotional movie. Mm-hmm. I cried a bunch. Really? <laughs> a bunch. This movie's a bummer. Yeah. Like, this movie <laughs> bums me out. Yeah. Which I didn't get last time I watched it. And I, I you know, cut my movie-watching teeth on bummer movies. And watching it this time, I think it's half because Charlie Kaufman really imbues it with, like, his anxieties. Like, mm. I feel his anxieties. Like... You know, being sort of a, a hypochondriac, of course, is not unique to Charlie Kaufman. But it's sort of like this character is actually suffering from like all the things that like a hypochondriac thinks they suffer from. He's like searching through his poop because he thinks there's blood in it, even though the audience doesn't see that. And there's like also poop. weird colored poop in this. <laughs> and he goes to the dentist and then they're like, yeah, gum you have all surgery. these cavities. And then he has to go to the periodontist for, for gum surgery. And yeah. he's got like a, a bouncy Jimmy leg. And like, yeah. And it's like, he goes to one doctor and he's like, okay, you're going to have to see a ophthalmologist. And that doctor's like, okay, you have to see a neurologist. Right, and right. like, you know, and this is all then the first part of the movie. Like once he actually becomes old later on and like the play starts being a thing his afflictions don't affect him anymore yeah i mean it's it's not like his afflictions aren't real or at least perceived right to be real. he still like, has like a cane and stuff like that but and it's, it's like he is he like focus on them. what looks to be like coke colored water like oh yeah when he pees in his Ooh. wife's sink Ooh. the art sink that was that's all that stuff is really hard to watch like it's like it's very uncomfortable and there's like a an element of like neuroticism that really comes across you sympathize almost too much, like, oh my god, it would suck to constantly have all these things. But there are people who just constantly think that they have things. Oh, yeah. And yeah, I don't know how many of these things he actually has and how many of these things he's just worried about having. But like, it's not until he gets to the, yeah, until he actually starts putting on this play that those things kind of go away. Yeah, well, I think that kind of stems from 
when I was watching it, I was like, how does the first half of this movie like reconcile itself with the second half? Yeah. You know, I, I mean, Charlie Kaufman scripts aren't, it's not unusual for them to start out as one thing and become another. Like that's sort of his thing. But I was like, what does all this death stuff have to do with the second half? And I think it's just, it imbues him with a sense of finality. He's mounting a production in the first half uh, when he has all these ailments. He's mounting a production of Death of a Salesman. Right. And he's cast young people in the roles. That's like his big artistic change in uh-huh. this is young people in all the roles. And when his wife sees it, she like chews his ass out. I can't get excited about you're restaging someone else's old play. Just there's nothing personal in it. People are coming to the theater crying. Great, be a fucking tool of suburban blue-haired regional theater subscribers. This kind of hits that area where, when you go to see a play, you don't necessarily want to see someone's odd interpretation of a play. Sure, like you kind of want to see what the playwright intended a lot of the times. Sure, but then. Also, like, if you're Caden, like, you don't want to do just another rehash of Death of a Salesman. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. anybody who's, like, even passingly familiar with theater has seen some production of Death of a Salesman, and they've probably seen one that already epitomizes it in their head. Sure. So it's like, if you're gonna make one that's, like, bold and progressive and and avant-garde, it's like, well... That's tough to do. Like, how do you please the people who want to see, like, what they envision the play to see? Right. And how do you satisfy yourself artistically in doing this? Yeah. That is a thing about plays, too. And I think that, like, is important to the themes of this movie is that, like, plays are different every time you see them. There's mm-hmm. going to be, like, lighting cues that might, might mess up or sound cues or the actors will deliver something a different way or, like, there's, like, days when actors are all high energy and, like, they're going to be low energy. So, like, every time you see a play, it's going to be something different. And so, like, the idea of staging a play that's based on life um, is going to produce results that are different every time. So... Yeah, and I mean, I guess that ties into what you're saying because he's not trying to... I guess that's a way of saying like he's not just trying to live a life that everybody knows about. He's really trying to elevate his into something more meaningful. Yeah, you also kind of get the impression that he has really just been a theater director. Like, he talks about different things that he's staged. So it's like he, you, you get these this inclination that like he's done other people's work his whole life mm-hmm. and this is the first time where he's doing an original work right which is a different beast you totally. know there's a reason why you don't write and direct and you know stage and finance everything start to finish like you have different people doing these jobs <laughs> well like that first meeting they have after he gets the macarthur genius grant and they're all like sitting in that small tiny room and he's like we'll start by talking honestly and out of that, a uh, piece of theater will evolve. 40 years later, they're still doing that. Yeah, he really, like, Cassavetes <laughs> it up. It's, yeah. uh, I also like how small it starts off. It just seems like a kernel, and then it, you know, grows into this big, huge thing. But, mm-hmm. like, uh, yeah, the idea is to just sort of explore and feel it out and see where it goes, and then it just ends up, you know, getting absurd into, like, the years that they're doing this. Yeah, and, I mean, it consumes his life. That is his life for, like, the entire second half. Which is what makes it so interesting when he stops being the director and starts being Helen. Like, when she takes Ellen. over. 
Ellen? Beads. I think it's Ellen. Okay, Ellen. Ellen. When he starts being Ellen, because then he realizes... Unconventional casting. (laughs) He realizes that everybody, no matter how small they may seem to him, is living a unique life. Or vice versa, which is that no matter how important a person is, their life is meaningless in the end because we all die. Yeah. And I think that also plays to like the scale thing that they they play with. That Mm -hmm. it's like even though Adele is working with really small stuff, that doesn't mean that it's not a big work of art in its own right. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like that juxtaposition, too. It's like her work gets smaller and smaller. His gets bigger and bigger. I mean, I've always liked that line that, like, you know, there are no, you know, just pull the the quote from the movie, but it's like there are no supporting roles in real life. Everyone is a star. Yeah. Because, I mean, that's true, and it's easy to forget that. And, I mean, he kind of illustrates it in this movie a little bit. There's a moment when, like, the guy who plays Willie Loman, he keeps popping up throughout the movie, which is a lot of fun. But he, there's one part where he's walking and uh, Caden's walking by him and he's like, People don't walk like that. What? Two. No, just walk like yourself. Watch, watch this. I gotta go. And then there's like, it cuts to um, like Caden coming in somewhere, but then there's like all these extras running around and suddenly I'm like, watching those extras oh because i'm like oh these people all have like they're in this movie they're extras so they have to be acting natural and you're like you're looking at them all of a sudden because you're like paying attention to the fact that like everybody is a part of this world yeah when when the uh willie loman guy was like is this how you walk that definitely reminded me of 30 rock when (laughs) uh jack alec baldwin's character was like they show outtakes of like him trying to act and he's like you know left leg left arm right leg right arm like moving in unison uh-huh. he's like is it this or if i may this it's sort of like that it's like you walk every day but then the moment you have to think about how to walk naturally yeah. it's like the hardest thing in the world oh, to man. do I've d- i did some plays in college and that was like one of the acting exercises we had to do or it's just like everyone sits around you in a circle and they're like now just walk naturally and you're like, uh, uh. <laughs> Helen Mirren said that's the hardest thing in acting is just like walk from like A to B and be natural about it. Yeah. That like it's never gotten any easier for. No, nope, can't do it. It's really tough. But then, I mean, that brings up the idea of like, how much are you an actor in your life and how much are you just like living it? If you want to go there. I guess my main takeaway, why I wanted to ask you first, like, what do you think this movie is about? Is because, like, I watched a lot of videos of interpretations of this, and I read a bunch of reviews and things like that, and everybody had a different takeaway. Like, I think this movie is so big, it just invites so many interpretations to it that it's so interesting for me to just hear what anybody has to say. And, like, even I got a different take from it this time. Like, I used to cry... Every time when Olive dies and she's like accusing him of uh, leaving her to go have sex a, with her, a, with his homosexual lover. Uh-huh. And he like didn't, but he t- tells her that he did to, you And know. apologizes yeah, for it. Yeah, yeah. And then she's like, I can't forgive you anyway. Like that always used to devastate me. Can you ever forgive me? For what? For abandoning you. For that I forgotten have. Um Analsex mit meinem homosexuellen Liebhaber Erik zu haben. I will. I'll say it. For abandoning you. 
to have anal sex with my homosexual lover, Eric. No. And this time around, I was like, eh, oh. I don't feel anything. <laughs> but well, I, mean, I cried at other parts. It's sort of a funny scene, like, right. when all is dying. Like, it, it's sort of easy to forget, but, like, I don't, well, I don't want to say it's easy to forget, but, like, Charlie Kaufman, like, cut his teeth in, like, show business writing by being a comedy writer. Right, yeah. He has some comedy chops in this yeah, movie, and, too. Yeah, I mean, the movie's not unfunny. Like, I don't, I don't want to give, like, anyone that impression, like, when his yeah. father dies and they're at the funeral, and, like... There was so little left of him. They had to fill the coffin with cotton balls to keep him from rattling around. And they show that tiny little <laughs> coffin. Like, that's really funny. And it's, like, during a super sad moment. Yeah, 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 yeah. But... Yeah, the scene where his daughter dies, while he's, like, retained a level of interest in Adele, like, after she leaves for Germany and, like, blows up over there, yeah, he retains a level of interest in her, but, like, we never see Adele after that. Like, we hear her on, like, you know, answering machines and voicemails right. and things like that, but we don't see her anymore. And he doesn't seem too concerned with what happens with her but he's very concerned about what happens with Olive. Yeah. I don't think he ever was really concerned with Adele. I think he was in love with Hazel. Yeah. I think he, he enjoyed aspects of being married. But, like, that therapy session. Talk about a scene that bums me out. <laughs> Can I say something awful? Yes, please do. I fantasized about Caden dying. being able to start again guilt-free i know that's that's bad i mean one of the things that i don't like about this movie is like it is sort of like it portrays relationships in a way that is like antithetical to my philosophies on relationship Mm. and one of it is like sticking with it through the bad spots so much that like you're fantasizing about the other person dying so that you can move on guilt-free and to me i'm just like get out of it (laughs) this is why divorce is a thing like you shouldn't live your life like this like even if they try and stay together just for the kid like the kid was four do you really want to spend 14 years in like misery like this yeah i watched something that was saying that um there's kind of that feel uh that the relationship is not going well in the production design of their house it's all these weird greens and oranges which kind of clash with each other and like it always looks a little messy and like uncomfortable there's a bathroom in the middle of the stairs like why would you put the bathroom there like just stuff like that to make you feel it, when you're in that house, it doesn't feel comfortable. Yeah, things feel a little cluttered and dirty. And yeah, it, you don't, you never get the feeling that like any of them are enjoying this space. Yeah. Really, the first half is, I almost feel like a bigger bummer than the second half. Yeah. Because at least in the second half, like he's devoting himself to, you know, this Fitzcarraldo like project. Mm-hmm. Uh, this, you know search for truth in in his art and at least that seems like a somewhat noble quest because it's just well i mean he does have a daughter like another daughter no that's a son with claire it's a son yeah but doesn't he say like i have to go find my real daughter yeah well i see okay 
I thought about this too because he does say, I want to go find my real daughter, and she's like, What? But um And then he says, My first daughter, my yeah. first daughter. But then later, uh the kids walking, holding hands with Claire and being like, If I don't touch my penis again, can I have a nickel or something like that? Oh, I thought she said if I don't touch my pee again. I think they said penis. I thought it was pee. <sighs> we'll have to go back to the tape. Can I have a nickel if I doesn't place my pee pee no more? But I would say, like, there's a whole thing with, like, genders sort of, like, merging near the end. Like, Caden starts to look more uh, feminine as he gets older. His uh, assistant starts to look a little more feminine, too. Samantha Morton starts to look a little more masculine. Like, they just sort of, like, as these characters age, they start to look less defined by gender. And that's actually a thing that like uh, during that last speech that Diane Weist is giving where she says like, you know, as you you go away, you start to lose your characteristics one by one. As you recognize your transience, as you begin to lose your characteristics one by one. And if you look at old people, they do kind of like look the same a little bit. But uh, there's a scene specifically where he's talking to... Either Claire or Hazel, I can't remember, and he's talking about something called the mikvah. Because we're all in the, the same water, after all. You know, soaking in our uh, very menstrual blood and nocturnal emissions. And there's also the the thing when Tom Newton is getting uh, doing his audition to be Caden. He talks about a chimera. And I want to fuck you until we merge and do a chimera. A mythical beast with penis and vagina eternally fused. Two pairs of eyes that look only at each other. There's like this whole idea of like coming together into one thing where gender isn't it at play anymore. Okay. Which then, you know, kind of makes him becoming Ellen make sense. See, I, I, I just kind of think that that like that stems from like working in show business for extended periods of time because you know as the the play goes on they have to start casting people to play the actors inside the play right and he starts viewing the people in his real life like he looks at them like through the lens of like who will i cast to play you in my play and then like the people in the play start looking at other people as if who's gonna play the play version of me in the play god i do sound crazy (laughs) Uh, i think i'm with you (laughs) But it does speak to how, and I've been, A, you've been choosing a lot of meta stuff this season. We had New <laughs> Nightmare, even Cedar Sings the Blues has like a meta element to it. And then I've like, just in my free time, I've been watching Curb Your Enthusiasm. And I watched the Seinfeld reunion season, and that just culminates in a super meta finale. Uh-huh. Uh, so it's just like meta's on my mind right now. <laughs> and I think that kind of helped me see how when you try and make your art reflect your life, that makes you look at your own life differently. And then that changes how your art is. Sure. And I mean, that is what, that is like the spiral that Caden gets into is that because he's aging, because this is taking so long, he can't get this play to reflect his life, especially because as he ages, his life becomes bigger. Like, yeah. he has more experiences that need to be captured in this play. Yeah. So, uh, would you buy a house that's on fire? That house is on fire. 
motivated seller. I used to not like the house on fire metaphor. I just, I think, or I used to just look past it. I didn't think too much about it. But this time around, I was like, I know we're going to talk about it. So I have to have some kind of answer. And yeah, the key was the realtor saying like, It's a big decision how one prefers to die. And that's one of the few scenes without Caden in it, by the way. Yeah. Um, like she's she's going in there and she's just like, you know, I never thought I'd be buying a house alone at 36. And it's sort of like her deciding, you know, that's okay. Like I'm, this is the route. I thought my life was going to take a different route, but it's going this way. And she's just like, I've decided to pick this one that I'm going to die in. Also, I want to live in her America where like woman working the box office at community theater can afford to buy a house. No. Schenectady, Schenectady, New, New York. York. Yeah. yeah, there it is. But yeah, and the house, she's decided that like she's just embracing this is her, they're going to be her life now. Like that's kind of how I see the house on fire. Because like there's that scene where she hits on Caden after the death of a salesman goes up and um, they're at the rap party or whatever. Yeah, and she's like, let's go get stoned in my car. And he's like, no, it gets me horny. And she's like, yeah, that's the point. And he's like, no, better not. And she's like, fine, you're no fun. And then it cuts to like, a two-second clip of her driving home and crying, and then it cuts right back to Caden. So it's like, I think that's sort of like her saying, all right, I'm giving up on this guy. Mm. Like, we're done. Like, mm-hmm. I don't even want to... And that means buying a house. Mm. And I like this one that's on fire, I guess. <laughs> well, she says that she's always liked it. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it has a hot bachelor in the basement. <laughs> Is he hot? Hey, he's acceptable. Oh, okay. If I moved into a place and like, also there's this guy who's available to fuck, I'd be like, yeah, why not? <laughs> Do I have to pay extra for that? Yeah, or? is there a surcharge? Or <laughs> it is funny. I can't remember who was talking about it, but some video essay I watched about this uh, was saying like, there's a change in the way you feel about the house as you watch the movie, where it starts off. And it's like a scary thing with like there's smoke and things in the wall. But then like somewhere along the line, pretty much near the end, I guess, when they're like laying in bed together, it kind of feels more like a hearth. Like mm. the, the fire almost feels warm. Yeah, maybe. I definitely remember by the end when she dies and the uh, EMT or whatever, it like swabs her mouth. He goes, might be smoke inhalation. I laughed because I was like, of course it is. <laughs> like, what else would it be? Yeah, yeah. I mean, another reason I think this movie is about death is because, like, everyone who dies... Because there's a lot of death in this movie. Mm-hmm. But everybody who dies in this movie kind of has, like, some horrible death. Like, uh, Adele has lung cancer. When uh, his dad dies, he says it was, like, the worst pain oh, that anybody God. could have. Yeah. He's like, he, he asked where I was, and then he gave, like, the most... He gave the longest and most beautiful deathbed speech yeah. any of them had ever heard. He <laughs> suffered a lot. Yeah, he <laughs> suffered a lot. The mom dies from, like, a home invasion situation. Like, everybody dies terribly, except for Caden. Like, Caden's death is very peaceful. He, like, falls asleep on that woman's shoulder. But see, I just view that as, like, an extension of Charlie Kaufman's anxiety. Mm -hmm. That it's just this fear of dying painfully. Like, he projects this fear onto every death in his life. Right. You're- because the call that he got when his father died was very short. Yeah. And then he hangs up and he's like, he said all this and like what he is saying that he's been told is much longer than what he actually could have been told in that phone call. Yeah, that's true. So a lot of me just thinks that it's his projection 
about his fears of death. I don't even necessarily think that it's like Caden's fear of death. I think it's Charlie Kaufman's sure. fears of death. I think it's safe to say anything we're talking about neuroses-wise in this movie, we're talking about Charlie <laughs> yeah, Kaufman. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, but I mean, like, that's the point is like, because Caden's death is so like sweet and sort of peaceful that like, that's probably how most people die. Like, you're just gonna eventually like fade away. It also kind of plays into that like sort of sweet almost saccharine like artistic narrative that like if you devote yourself to the art life that you do find a release or or, or a form of happiness mm-hmm. as opposed to if you're doing someone else's art your whole life that that isn't fulfilling yeah but even then i mean like i don't get the impression that adele's death is was any different than his it just seems bad because she had lung cancer. Yeah. You know. But I think that just, yeah, that all, because the way, uh, once again, Charlie Kaufman, not Cadence, he like listens to a voicemail meant for Ellen. Hi, Ellen. Crackerjack job last night. <coughs> Would you do sheets again? We had quite a fuck. It's musky and gross. Kisses. Okay. That's the sort of thing that you project on to your exes. Oh, totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's just made manifest in this movie. And, you know, uh, when he's, like, reading Olive's diary, which has this sort of magical bond to, like, Olive, who her and Adele go to Germany fairly early in the movie, and he finds a diary, and the diary updates. It's like the he, he knows what Olive is thinking, even though he hasn't seen her in years. Right. It's definitely, like, especially, like, as she gets older and she, like, you know, I can only pity and loathe my father and stuff like that. Like, once again, projections. Yeah. Like, this is, like, how you project. Like, if, if you got divorced and had a kid and the kid went with the other parent. Yeah. Like, that's how you, you, you'd perceive that the other parent's, like, poisoning the, the child against you. When in actuality, they probably aren't. Like, they probably don't think about Caden that often. Yeah. But, like, you think that they're poisoning your their mind. And that's what I mean about, like, him. It's like this is just somebody on their deathbed kind of going through all their last thoughts. Like, he's just thinking, like, oh, this is how I've wronged my daughter, blah, 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 blah. And mm-hmm. then, like, he finally has this big moment with her. And she and he, like, realizes that she'll never forgive him. And he just has to let that and go. And it's for a lie. Yeah. Like, she won't forgive him for something that's not true. Yeah. And then he lets her go, and then she never comes up again. And, you know, when, like, when he goes to try and find the daughter, he has that, like, you know, that thing that's, like, every parent's worst nightmare of, like, she's, like, s- not even stripping. She just comes out naked, tattooed, blowing yeah. bubbles in this, like, red light district window. Yeah. And, like, he's banging on the window, and he can't get through to her. Like, that's, t- to me, that's, like, an anxiety dream that I have of, like, you're oh. trying to talk to someone, and for whatever reason, they're just unresponsive. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, so there's yeah, just a lot of anxieties there that just seem to be projections of the author. Mm-hmm. You know, he goes to he wants to meet Olive in Germany. She's you know, I think she's she's supposed to be like eleven. He still thinks that she's four, but she's actually eleven. Yeah. And Jennifer Jason Lee is there, and <laughs> she's like, she's my muse. Why does Jennifer Jason Lee suddenly have a German accent? Like, Dream logic, man. <laughs> Because, like, we get introduced to Jennifer Jason Lee fairly early on, and it's, like, her and Catherine Keener have, you know, a fun friendship. Yeah. Like, they get stoned and talk all night. Like, yeah. I love it. But 
it's like the way that he interprets it is like, oh, they're secretly like conspiring yeah. against me. Yeah. And then like it becomes real as the as the movie goes yeah. on. And in his head he's turned uh her into Olive's lover. Yeah. And, like, poisoned her. That she stole Olive away from me yeah. and tainted her with tattoos and lesbian. Told sex. her stories about me and my fake lover. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And Adele lives with two men and uh, uh, right. Jennifer Jason Lee. Her it's husbands. Like, <laughs> uh, Adele's just living this crazy, fantastic life, and she's in magazines. And but at the same time, like he never actually seems like jealous of like her creative success. Like he keeps no. tabs on it, but that doesn't seem to be giving him anxiety. It's really just what's happening in her personal life that gives him anxiety. Yeah. I don't want to say he's happy for her either. We don't get that. But he goes and looks at the artwork. Yeah, and it's not like he causes a scene or is judgmental or super critical of her artwork. Yeah. Like, he, he seems to be just, like, neutral towards it a little bit. Yeah. Personally, that's kind of how I feel about my ex. Is like, yeah, I keep tabs on him. Of course I do. Yeah. But, like, especially as years go on, I'm not, like, uh, uh, there's no animosity there Yeah. towards them or anything like that. You just don't want them to be happy. <laughs> <laughs> That's what makes the, I mean, well, now I'm just trying to piece together um, the taking over Ellen's role as like Adele's housekeeper, like how that changes. And because he likes cleaning, he discovers after she moves to Germany and he likes specifically cleaning up after Adele because he cleans her whole workstation yeah. like, or basement area. And then he gets mistaken for Ellen by a neighbor and, uh, comes in and starts cleaning and then he eventually gets to become Ellen in the play. Uh-huh. And then it's like, how much is he playing the role of the housekeeper for Adele? And how much is he just being the housekeeper for Adele? You yeah, know? Yeah. Like, I don't know where that line is. And I think that kind of plays into like my theory. That it's like when you do this sort of thing for so long, like your line is to like where a person in your real life is and the role in a movie or play kind of blur together. Yeah. Especially if you're trying to like just accurately portray this person in your life or mm-hmm. an experience in your life in your play, then it just that boundary becomes less defined. Well, that happens with actors these days. Like think of Carrie Fisher. Carrie Fisher is Princess Leia. Princess Leia mm-hmm. is Carrie Fisher. Like mm-hmm. they're they're one in the same. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm sure there's other examples of that. But yeah, how much is playing a role just playing a role, and how much is it that you define that role by being that thing? Yeah, does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, I think so. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, so yeah, there's, there's just. I don't know. I we'll never get. I mean, like this is the thing is like watching all those videos. I'm just like, well, you guys haven't even talked about the things I want you to talk about. <laughs> Like, we'll never be able to get it all because, like, you know, this movie's all about... If it's all about death, it's also all about life, which is everything, you know? So there's just no way to cover it all. That's <laughs> how I feel, anyway. Mm. I want to say... Um, well, first of all, I want to say great makeup in this movie. Sure. I feel like we got Dick Smith coming in here from The Exorcist. just making <laughs> like, who's that? <laughs> making some convincing old makeup again. Yeah, I mean good makeup artistry like it's weird like you have to like think about the character like what is the sort of life this character would lead and how will that age them yeah 
stuff like that I love to like pick people's mind about like costume designers and things like that it's like because the clothes that they wear portrays you know the status of a character right and yeah it's like makeup artists have to think about like if they're aging an actor they have to think about like how would the character age like what kind of life would they live would it be comfortable would it be hard like what are they gonna yeah look like in 40 50 years Did they laugh a lot like things like that were yeah they stressed were they anxious were they neurotic mm-hmm did they uh, see the sun a lot as a child and like did they go through their poop with a wooden spoon <laughs> things like that but I don't know I like I like all the old makeup usually like old makeup really throws me off but it looks pretty convincing in this in this movie I'd say you mean like I'm back to the future yeah <laughs> that's a great example <laughs> I want to give a shout out to the casting director like fuck this cast man yeah once diane we showed up and i forgot she was in this movie i was Me like too. Oh, of course this is why ryan likes this <laughs> I forgot he's too. got a old lady boner for diane weast <laughs> have we not done a diane weast uh movie yet a, a feast of weast yeah <laughs> <laughs> no not yet God, i fucking love her i love her delivery uh when he's like you're weirdly close to what i visualized for this character Glad to be weirdly close. I meant to look this up, but I'm not sure. Do you think Scrub-A-Dub is actually a play? I don't know, because there was like the Needleman thing that uh, his second wife goes off to do. And there's a scene where she's like rehearsing it. Uh-huh. And they just keep saying the word Needleman. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, this probably isn't a real play. Yeah. Claire is played by Michelle Williams. Yeah. Yeah. We've got her... Catherine Keener, I don't know if we said that that's who's playing Adele yet, but yeah. like uh, she's always a sign of quality. Especially in Charlie Kaufman stuff, because she's in Being John Malkovich, too, and she's yeah. probably my favorite Fantastic. Stephanie, why can I never remember her name? Samantha Morton. Samantha Morton. I love her. Also, she... also known as the precog from Minority Report. Oh, is she? Yeah, she's the one that like they have to like rescue like the gifted one. Oh, okay, okay, okay. I just know her mostly from Warvern Collar. Mm, which, yeah, um, of course. She's she whenever she pops up, she's always fun for me. And then of course the person playing Hazel in the play is Emily Watson. Emily Watson. <laughs> which damn. Yeah, I know. It's like top tier actress that you get to play you, you get to play someone else. <laughs> In a movie. Yeah, her ca- who is her character other than, like, Hazel's Yeah, the person actress. playing Hazel. Yeah, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. We I don't, don't know anything don't, else about her, really. Uh, yeah, Diane Weist is in this. Tom Noonan. Tom who... Noonan. <laughs> yeah, there's just there's a strong cast in this one. Yeah, really good. Real, real good. Um, fuck, John Bryan did the music. This might be one of my favorite scores he's he, done. Because he also did the score for uh, I Heart Huckabees, right? Yep. Yeah. And Turn Sunshine to Spotless okay, Mind yeah. and... Um, I think he did Magnolia. He's great. He's done lots of stuff, but this might be my favorite score he's done. Okay. The like, um, like random arpeggiated synth noises are like sounds like that always is affecting to me. It it, it helped hammer home the bummerness of this movie too (laughs) a lot. Yeah. And I love that song. He wrote the uh, little person song that plays. Um, in its entirety, I think when he and Hazel, when Caden and Hazel have their first like go home to the house on fire date kind of thing. Oh, okay. It's a very romantic song, and um, recommend checking it out. I don't remember who sings it, but I know John Bryan wrote it. Mm. So, so do you feel that the ending of this movie is built into the beginning? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Movies uh it's all about death. So, mm. 
you know, on the planes, trains, and automobiles episode, we talk about how like it's always tempting with the movie to be like, well, and then what happened? And then what happened? And there's none of that in this movie because mm. he dies. <laughs> and that's it. That's the end. Yeah. You know? uh, but how is that built into the beginning? Because he was born. But I mean, the beginning of the movie, the ending of the movie, is it built into the beginning of the movie? Yes. Okay. Because the radio announcer's talking about how it's fall. He's in the like fall of his life if mm. he's like 40 ish, which, ouch. But, um. You think that's the fall? That's like the July. <laughs> well, maybe these days, yeah. You have. 40 more years at minimum ahead of you, Ryan. I know, but if my life's anything like this movie, it's just going to be like, I'll think a week has passed when in fact a year has passed. And Which, like, shit. I mean, that is like the older I get, the faster time goes. Yeah. Doesn't it feel like January was like just a couple. I feel like Trump was just ago? elected. Yeah. That is a real thing in this movie that is scary. Uh, but I mean, yeah, the end is built into. The beginning how do you feel about that i don't know it's just like he says it so i'm like it'd be really lazy if it wasn't actually in this movie yeah and i think it's just that the beginning focuses so much on sickness and death right and but that he really lives another half of his life right before dying yeah he because he's obsessed with the ending he's so obsessed with like all these like ailments that could be coming towards him that he forgets to and do we know if live his, stuff do we know if his play has an ending well I, I assume it doesn't because it all just fell apart well it fell apart because everyone died before it could yeah be <laughs> staged but yeah also where would the audience watch this play yeah i don't know that's a fantastical element yeah classic kaufman yeah but yeah i don't know it's a big movie and i think a lot of people write this movie off because they aren't willing to do work on it. And it's a movie that requires some work to make sense of it. Not everyone's four-year-olds that uh, write novels about a white supremacist who gets like in with the clan that introduces him into like the snuff pornography industry. And, and his ultimate degradation at the hands of a black ex-convict named Eric Washington Jackson Jones Johnson. Written by a four-year-old. Jefferson. That's, that's probably one of my favorite just little segments in the movie. Yeah. It's full of that that stuff. Just those little nuggets. Also, I want to say, I loved Dell's paintings. Like, they were dark and gothic. Yeah. And, like, expressionistic. Should we find out the name of that guy? There's Because they were painted by somebody. Uh, Yeah, drop it in. Alex Konevsky. Dell was a true artist. She sure was. <laughs> Shame about the lung cancer. Yeah. If she were to drop uh, a portrait of you, what do you think it would be like? Probably nude. There was a lot of nudes in there. I mean, there were a lot of nudes, but do you think yours specifically would be nude? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'd probably have a parka on, but it'd be open Mm. so you could see everything. Like a flasher? Yeah. Okay. Well, I was thinking more like I, I put on a big shield but I'm just exposed underneath Okay, it. therapy boy. <laughs> <laughs> what would yours look like? It'd probably be me, like, crawling on the floor, probably also naked to keep it on theme, but, like, me, like, melting into the floor. Oh. So, like, my legs and, like, you know, were, would probably, like, cascade 
down into the floor like I was melting into it. Mm. Uh, and then, like, I'd be trying to, like, hold myself up, you know, uh, uh, upward dog style. Okay. Uh, but, like, my hands would already be, like, melted and morphed into the floor. Oh, man. I have no idea what that means. It just came to my head. Uh-huh. <laughs> I want you to think on that. We'll, 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 uh, we'll reevaluate next week. a tape recorder? <laughs> we'll re- reevaluate next week. Yeah. Thanks for indulging me. This is—I know this was like a big movie to do for the PCAST. It was a big one. <laughs> like I feel like we gotta have a mini series on this one. Yeah, we could keep talking about it, but like, not that I'd necessarily want to. Like, the movie is almost too much for me emotionally. I don't think I walked away from this movie thinking that it was a happy movie. No. Like, I mean, you know me. I'm always looking at things. Was this a happy ending or a sad ending? And I feel like this ultimately was a sad ending. Really, in order for this to be a happy ending, his play would have had to have been mounted in some way, shape, or form. And it wasn't. Like, when he dies, it dies with him. And so, like, his truth will never be out there. He he did not create something that will outlive him. Mm-hmm. I personally don't have that desire to, like, oh, my legacy will live on through my work. Like, that's not a form of existential dread that imbues me. Yeah. But I understand that a lot of people have that. And that drives a lot of people that like they find immortality through work. And I think he failed in that this play would be unperformable without him. Mm -hmm. And so he died and like, it's just, there's going to bulldoze it. Yeah. I ultimately think it's a tragedy too, but I think the tragedy is that, he never really connected. Like he's always been kind of a navel gazy kind of guy. Yeah, for someone who banged as many hot women as he did, he was always complaining about being lonely. Yeah. Which I know that sex is in everything, but it's like he had companionship a number of times. Yeah. And he had opportunities to be with other people and he, he pushed them away. Yeah. For various reasons. But like Hazel specifically yeah. is like the big one where I'm like, you have you should have t- taken that chance, you know? And I think he regrets that. Yeah. And that's partially what the play is about. Um, well, asking her to come work on the play, what's that? That's what that's about. It's yeah. like trying to reconcile that for with him. Yeah. So, but, you know, smoke inhalation, it's bad. <laughs> but yeah, I think I just think it's an emotional movie and um, endlessly interpretable. Sure, sure. I'm pretty sure my interpretation's right, but that's fine. <laughs> anyway, what do we have coming up next week? We haven't done a foreign film since Hugo and Theo, episode 101. Mm. So it's been 38 episodes since we've done a foreign film. Yeah, well, I mean, none of our guests chose any in Guest Fest, and um, I don't watch a lot of bad Gay foreign. That put a pin in that. Far. <laughs> I got one. A movie. A movie as bad as the movies that we covered in a foreign language. That just might be too much to ask. <laughs> but no, like yeah, it's just been like basically three full seasons where we haven't done a single foreign film. Okay. So I'm choosing 
knocking another big director out of out on this season. Oh, uh, we're doing a Kurosawa film. Oh, uh, we were talking about this off pod a couple weeks ago, and I just um, it, I've been itching to watch it since. I want to do High and Low. Okay, mostly because like after watching Parasite. The idea of class structures mm. is is on my mind, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and this is one from the '60s that deals with class structures. Okay, and yeah, we haven't done a Japanese film since Tempopo. Oh boy, and yeah, we haven't done a foreign film in like 30 episodes, 38 what episodes. So, what if we did a whole season of foreign language films, maybe I wouldn't. I wouldn't be against that. No, uh, I can probably fill that up. Plug our junk. Get the fuck out of here. I pointed. <laughs> yes. You can follow us on Twitter if you so choose. That handle, thar, is at X-Rated Movies. Follow us on Facebook, at Rated X Movies, if you're still using Facebook. A lot of bad news came out about Facebook this week. Yeah, we might, I don't know, we might be evacuating that. (laughs) So, don't forget to check out our website, xratedmovies.com. We will be updating certain sections of that soon. Email us at x.rated.movies at gmail.com. It's a good way, the best way to contact us. Really, the best way. Old electronic mail. <laughs> and of course, leave us love wherever you get your podcasts for free. It's a great way to support us and our endeavors, and it really gives me the motivation to continue working on this sometimes. <laughs> So, yeah, if you're a listener and you like this podcast, give us a little love. We'd appreciate it. All right. Until next time. Keep reaching for that rainbow. Bye. Bye.